here again, diving in, continuing on with our study of salvation. Um, we have been working our way through. We're kind of in this tail end, last section. Um, we went through the why we accept salvation, the how we accept salvation, and now we're in kind of the, the end section here, which is still a very large end section, as you can kind of see as you flip through some of the handouts, of the what we get in salvation. So this is a really cool section because, kind of like what I had said before, we don't necessarily always think in terms of what I receive in my salvation. We usually think of it being God's gracious work to us and saving us from our sins. But there are some really cool things that if we delve into, that we also receive and are given by the Lord. So last time we kind of had um, tied up our section just with what kind of just more entered the section, I should say, with our union with Christ. That idea of him being in us and us being in him and what that means in our, in our relationship with the Lord being so close and so intimate and so amazing that in some shape or form, if we think about it, God residing within us, it just can blow our minds with amazement, as it should. And hopefully leads then to also praise and glorification to him for that work. So today we're going to move into another attribute of this, what we get in justification. So let's have this conversation about justification. So I want to kind of build off of our definition here, but just to kind of get our minds jogged here and everything before we kind of go too far. What we're talking about when we speak of justification, this is coming from that Greek term of to declare righteous. So it is a legal act wherein God pronounces that the believing sinner has been credited with all the virtues of Jesus Christ, all right? So we're going to kind of expand upon that. Now, one thing I want to kind of distinguish here, and you're kind of seeing it within the definition, is we do need to make a differentiation between forgiveness and justification. And what I mean by that is, so you have forgiveness, You have justification. Now, within forgiveness, there is a negation involved within it. So we'll kind of draw like the negative sign, mathematically speaking, so to speak. Now, the negation isn't as far as like a negative as in it is bad, okay? What we're talking about is that we have the negation or the negative effect that our sins have been taken away. So this is a positive negative if you will, okay? Don't think too hard on that. But <laughs> so this is a good negation. It is something that we want. We do want our sins to be taken away, and that's what we receive with when we're talking about forgiveness. Now, with justification, we have to talk about something being added to us, i.e. a positive being put to us. So we'll draw the positive sign here. When we're talking about positive, what has been added to us is righteousness. So justification is that we have righteousness added to us. So, oftentimes we talk about righteousness. And kind of use some in the vernacular here is, you know, you might say something like, oh, that's righteous, right? And unfortunately, I see the college group kind of smirking. I don't think that's in trend anymore. <laughs> Which means I'm aging. <laughs> it was like 20 years ago, I'm sorry. Yeah, I think it was even, yeah, so. But that didn't work. Okay, so righteousness. 
You don't say it if you're cool now, but when we're talking about righteousness, I think something that helps us is to define it. So we're talking about kind of, when we talk about righteousness, we're talking about that state or condition of perfectly conforming to God's perfect law and his holy character. So it's that perfection of conforming to everything he has deemed to be right, not partaking of what he has said to be wrong, everything in conformity with his character. Now, that's important because we're going to have that added to us, but in what way, in shape, or form. Justification, we also need to understand, we're kind of talking within the legal realm of our salvation. Kind of think of it like we're in the courtroom. God is the judge. We're the criminal. We're in that seat as the criminal. Now, our status in that courtroom, we have to understand, is determined by the crime for which we have committed. Right? That's why we're there. In this instance, when we're talking about justification, we're talking about this legal court proceeding where we, the criminal, have massively failed. This is our crime. We have massively failed at keeping, perfectly keeping, God's holy and righteous law, i.e. we are unrighteous. Right? So it's important to emphasize that we're speaking on legal terms. And the reason I bring that up is, is because... When we talk about justification as well, we're not talking about the inner transformation of the individual with inside. Okay, this is on legal terms. When we begin to discuss about the internal transformation, that's where we're talking about something, say, regeneration. Obviously, I don't want to go too far into that because, Lord willing, we will also get into that possibly today. We'll see. So, I just want to make that differentiation. All right, let's take a look at some scriptures here. Romans 4, 2 through 5. Could I get a reader? Somebody? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. It's a truly fantastic passage. There's a lot here by all means, but did you catch some of the verbiage? If we look at that word credited, it's repeated three times within this section alone. Some versions might use like account or accounted unto us. So let me ask the question here then, what role does man play in justification according to this passage? And why do you suppose that God designed it in this way? What role does man play within justification? He doesn't. He doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't, right? And that, you could say, is part of the problem, so to speak, as far as our efforts are concerned. So let me ask this question. Can we actually attain to perfectly obeying God's law? Here's everything that God lays before us. Here's what I so wish you to do. Can we do it? No. 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 So this just keeps getting worse, right? (laughs) Okay. Because with Matthew 5.48, Jesus explains the standard. He lays it forward, and I'll read it out loud to you here. Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. Great, right? 
there's no way that I, a sinful human being, broken in my state, am going to perfectly adhere to God's law. So this is the problem that we face, but this is where we have the hope because Christ now steps in. This is where we understand how Christ works within this, okay? So what we need is, if we're unrighteous, we need righteousness. We need to be seen in God's eyes as keeping his laws perfectly. We've kind of already talked about this, but so what can we do? The answer is nothing. So I'm stuck, and this is where Jesus comes in. When we talk about keeping God's perfect law, one important piece of justification here, let's think of it this way. We have Christ, and we have us, all right? So, within Christ, is there any spot, blemish, sin, anything within him? Obviously, Mike Drone's not perfect, and mm-hmm. don't be the wise guy and say, well, there's a nick right there. It's like, that's a board, okay? So, But is there anything, any imperfection within Christ himself? See, he's shaking, no, right? What about us, right? We naturally know that we are riddled with imperfection, unfortunately. We are sinful. It affects every aspect of our being in some shape or form. So honestly, if I could truly, I would probably just blacken that circle. Absolutely. But then it'll be like 10 more minutes and we've wasted time kind of deal. But you get the idea. So within justification, one important aspect that we need to understand is that we may be lacking righteousness... But in the legal sense, what we have is that Christ's perfection, his righteousness, is put to our account. And there's a flip side to it as well, in the regards that our sin is then accredited to his account. So, then basically, the picture kind of begins to look like this. This is how, legally speaking, God now views the situation. Our sins are taken from us and imputed to his account, which, then if we continue with the story, so to speak, he then pays for that crime, that punishment on the cross for our sins, right? But we now have the righteousness of him bestowed upon us. So when God looks upon us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. That's why sometimes you'll hear people, they'll talk about it, that the righteousness that we have is alien to us. It's foreign to us. It's not a righteousness of our own. I can't lay claim to it and be like, I'm righteous because I'm awesome. No. I, with humility and no arrogance, say the only righteousness that I have is not my own. It is Christ. This transfer within these accounts, if you will, is what we would call within justification imputation his righteousness being imputed to us and our sinfulness being imputed to him amazing work of Christ that we obviously should give him all the glory and praise for so on the cross Christ dies for us since he takes our sins upon himself let me just kind of give you some verses that kind of drive this home a little bit not in your handout here if you want to jot them down 
2 Corinthians 5.21, it speaks of, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 5.9, kind of putting this um, in a little bit uh, more to home space as far as we have been justified, what? By his blood, right? That is his payment on the cross. So, we have this whole idea of imputation within justification. Okay, so it's not our own. Romans 5, 1. Could I get another reader, please? Somebody. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. So we've stated kind of the problem. We've stated now what's happened, legally speaking, within the courtroom. But what is the result of being justified? What does it say here? What's the result of justification? Peace. Peace. Exactly. Now being justified, the righteous judge, whom we were going to be punished rightly for, right? Now peace with him. I always think of the analogy of there's no more saber rattling. Have you heard that before, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the sword is described as an instrument of judgment of death right? It's not a friendly thing. And so when we talk about that kind of saber rattling, that's the idea that you had better watch it because things are about to get serious, right? Well, no longer does God have to put his hand to the hilt of the sword because we are now deemed righteous, not guilty. That's fabulous news. Well, also in this passage, did you catch it? What were we justified by? How are we justified? What does it say? Justified by faith. Exactly. So faith, our faith, is the means by which we have now been justified. Okay? Titus 3, 5 through 7. Could I get another reader? I can. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Here again, we have to ask the question, according to this passage, why did God save us? We're super cool and awesome. What does it say? According to his mercy. Mercy. God is being so rich and merciful to us. And there again, what role do our deeds play in our righteousness? Like we've talked about before, none, right? Because it's a righteousness that is not of our own. So this is kind of the broad, fast scope of what we're talking about when we get to justification. And this does offer hope to unbelievers who believe that they could never make themselves righteous enough before God. I think we've talked about this before, but have you ever run into that person? It's just like they feel that they just need to do all these things. If only I was so much more perfect. If it was only that I did this, spoke this way, performed these acts. That's hopelessness. I mean, that's just tragic if you contemplate that. But this states that we don't have to worry about that because our righteousness isn't our own, or the righteousness of which we have isn't our own. And this should also, when we're speaking kind of in that legal realm, that 
God isn't going to make us then also pay for our sins later. There isn't a divine, ah, just kidding, gotcha, kind of idea waiting for us. What he has done, he will do in his doom. We can rest assured that we won't taste the penalty for our sins, which creates a great comfort. All right. Questions? Yeah, Scott. Just noticing that that's great in that passage because it starts according to his mercy, and then you see at the end that being justified by his grace, and then in the middle, and it says by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So that's kind of showing us that it's not just a you have Christ's righteousness, you're going to be a wicked sinner forever, but you can have, right? There's the additional work as well that he does regenerate and he does wash you and does renew you by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. This, as we kind of go through these attributes, this is kind of like the story that just keeps getting better, <laughs> so to speak, right? Um, and so, Scott, you kind of you bring it up, so let's just go into it, right? We come to our next part. And that's regeneration that we see in this passage. It is so ironic to me as I work through these studies that we have almost some of the same passages just come up time and time again, which shows the richness of the scriptures that we're looking at here. Um, so let's have this conversation now. Let's move into regeneration. Okay. And here again, I think it would help us just before we kind of dive in, because I'm going to do, we're going to kind of, we're going to leave the study guide for a little bit. We're going to go on a hike, so to speak. So we'll see if this works. But when we're talking about regeneration, here again, we're talking about the work of the Holy Spirit and giving life to the believing sinner, right? This is what we just read about with Titus here, three. So this is um, the believing sinner affecting the new birth, right? And the results of regeneration last throughout our Christian lives as God grants us a new heart with a propensity to obey. Now it is important to know that it's the results of regeneration are experienced throughout our life. But we have to understand that our regeneration is a moment in time of working within us. But we're going to kind of see that here. So if I could ask, if you guys could go ahead and maybe flip open your Bibles. I'm going to give a couple different verses and we'll ask some questions of these verses as we kind of build our understanding of regeneration. Okay. First, let's look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 2. Let's go to Ephesians 2, 1 through 2. And let's kind of build our understanding, build our argument of Regeneration. Okay. And if somebody is there, if you could go ahead and read that, please. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Excellent. Thank you. It's a basic question. I think we've asked this two or three times by now. What's man's natural state according to this verse? What is he? Dead. Dead. Right? So, man, described biblically before salvation, is dead. What kind of dead is he? Excellent. Not mostly dead. All dead. It's funny you mentioned that game. Hmm. 
like the reference stuff. He's almost dead, kind all, of. All dead. Yeah. Gabe, you bring home an interesting point here, and that's that when we hover around this passage, oftentimes you may hear some of the analogies, right? You guys have probably heard it before. It's, it's the man's in the ocean, right? Exactly. Yeah, he's up and down, bobbing, struggling, fighting with the sea. His head is going under and above the water. He's essentially drowning, right? And it's that idea that the man is beginning to sink. His hand is just above the waterline. And that's when the life preserver of God thrown by him is sent and we clasp around it. Is that what this passage describes? No. He's not almost dead, right? He's not kind of dead. He's not, he was floundering with death. He's dead. The more accurate understanding of this passage is in that scenario, you think of man at the bottom of the ocean. He's lying on the ocean floor, no heartbeat, no breath, no vital signs of any kind. He's a dead lead weight on the bottom. That is how we are described biblically. We're dead in our trespasses and sins spiritually. Okay? This man is still physically alive, but we know internally that is a doornail, right? Okay. That's why, for instance, when the gospel hits his ears, he rejects it, mm-hmm. right? And that brings us to another passage here. If you want to turn 1 Corinthians 2.14. 1 Corinthians 2.14, if you want to flip there. And if you get there, if you'd be so bold to go ahead and read it out loud to all of us. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are followed to him. She is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Thank you. So in this passage, how are the things of the Spirit of God discerned? How? How what is the discernment? What is it? Spiritually, there's a spiritual discernment that is needed to understand the things of God. So this man, as we are described, is dead. He is dead spiritually, which then incapacitates him to spiritual truth, right? That's why, for instance, here again, like I just said with the gospel, when he hears those spiritual truths being preached to him, it just seems to go right over his head. They're seen as foolishness. Because they have to be spiritually discerned. Okay? So, spiritually done. So man is always going to reject the things of God. He's not able to understand them because of that spiritual discernment. Alright, now let's go to the kind of meat and potatoes of this. Let's go to John 3, if you would. John chapter 3. And if I could get somebody to read, let's do verses 1 and 2, please. Verses 1 and 2. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler for the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Excellent. Okay, so we've got the scene, right? 
But this man named Nicodemus comes by night to Jesus. Why is he coming to Jesus by night? We'll, we'll figure that out in just a second. One thing I want to point out. Some of you may be familiar with Nicodemus, so if I repeat knowledge that you already have, then forgive me. But I think when we view this passage as a whole, it helps drive home some of the truths if we understand a little bit about him. So via this passage, he is described as a man of the what? Pharisees. Pharisees. So he is a Pharisee, quote-unquote by trade. He's part of that elite religious group of Israel, and these guys are the guys. They adhere to the Old Testament law and have the audacity to add some to it, right? And they want to completely adhere to it, and they think you should as well, perfectly. Which I guess I could say, you know, it's like, okay, I get it. But the problem of it is, that's where they're attaining to for their righteousness, is how well I'm doing. I can check all the boxes and everything like that, right? And they follow this so steadfastly and fastidiously. Not only that, but we learn also via church history and the scriptures that Nicodemus is also a member of the Sanhedrin. Okay? You guys are probably also familiar with that term. But here again, the Sanhedrin is the elite supreme court of Israel. This is a body of about 70 individuals who form this supreme court. So not only is he a Pharisee, he is also a member of the Sanhedrin. This guy has some social merit, so to speak. Right? Take a look at this. Verse 10, Jesus describes him as the teacher of Israel. This could be a little bit up for debate, but some commentators will point to the fact that him being called the teacher of Israel, this guy is wicked smart, okay? He is the guy. If you have a question, he can answer it, right? He has memorized massive sections of the Old Testament. could probably rattle them straight off to you. He has all the answers of which you would want. But it also points to the fact that even as an individual, he's intelligent. He's quick. He understands these things, right? So he is, he is that guy that if he walks kind of down the street, he's the guy that you point by and you're like, that's Nicodemus. Did you see? That's Nicodemus, man. I'm going to go talk to him. Like, you're going to make a fool of yourself. Stop. Like, okay, right? That's Nicodemus. That's what we're pointing to. Let me add even a little bit further to it. He's probably also extremely wealthy. Some will point to via church history and such that there is a high chance that with all these attributes, with all this social status and everything like that, the man is well off. Potentially, possibly one of the most wealthy individuals in Israel at the time. So Nicodemus was the Keanu Reeves of his <laughs> I suppose if that works for you, yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> the wise sage of the day. Okay, so Keanu. Right? No. So I put all this into perspective here because I want the weight of who this guy is coming to Jesus to kind of sink in. In essence, this is the guy who should have the answers. But let's come back to our scripture here. Verse 3. Could somebody read that? Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's right. I think there is some, I don't know if you call it irony or awkwardness in this passage, or at least as I read it. Nicodemus gives this greeting, and Jesus just goes straight into it, doesn't he? He doesn't say, hey, how are you? I'm glad you're here. Who are you? Cloaked mystery man in the dark kind of thing. No, he goes straight to it. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Jesus goes smack dab into theology right out the chute with this guy, right? Now, what does Jesus' state must happen in order to see the kingdom of God? What is the contingent clause? What is it? You see him? Born again. So he hits Nicodemus. Hey, look, you want to enter the kingdom of God? You've got to be born again. This is literally a smack in the face to Nicodemus because remember that checkbox analogy that I said a second ago? This guy is looking for a list. He wants Jesus to say, well, look, Nicodemus, I need you to go do these things. I need you to know these people. I need you to blah, 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 blah. Here's the list. Go fill it, and we'll talk later. Nicodemus is just literally broadsided with this, and that's why look at his response, right? Nicodemus said, verse 4 here, how can, or excuse me, how can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I think this is confusion on Nicodemus's account. Some will say that maybe he's being sarcastic. I lean more towards the side as this is, what? You want me to be born again. Is that right, Jesus? Right? That's kind of the attitude of which I kind of understand what he's talking about. But let's continue on. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, that comes from Ezekiel 36, just ad-lib there, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So what kind of being born again is Jesus speaking of here? What kind of rebirth does he point to? Does he talking about here? Spirit. So here again, we have man dead spiritually. Jesus lays the clause of there needs to be a spiritual rebirth. Okay? But we also then have to ask the question of how on earth are you to be born again spiritually, right? Now, this spiritual rebirth is what we are in right now. This is what we would call regeneration, that work of the Holy Spirit in giving life to the believing sinner. Look at verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This makes me scratch my head. What do you think Jesus is getting at here? Why is he going? with this. What do you think? Wrong answers are fine too. Because I would have given lots of wrong answers had I not been helped. What do you think he's getting at? <clears throat> makes me think of faith. Like you believe that the wind is there, but you don't know where it comes from. I guess he just refers to that you know, he is there, but we don't know where he came from yet. He's referring to his salvation. Exactly. You guys are queuing in on it, right? Because what's the analogy given here is that Jesus gives Jesus gives the analogy between the wind and the spirit. So we need to kind of dissect that, right? Now in particular we're talking about the Holy Spirit. So we need to 
the Holy Spirit, right? Wind and the Holy Spirit and that interaction. And Steve, I think you're hitting it dead on there. Because if you think about it, let's even think about this. Think about your birth, okay? Your birth in particular. Let me ask you some questions. Did you choose when you were born? No. Did you choose where you were born? Did you choose mom and dad as much as you would have wanted to? <laughs> no. Right? Just so as we don't have choice within our birth, we don't have anything to do with our spiritual birth. It is a work of the spirit within us. Okay? And see what you were saying here, the effects, right? The comparison with the wind and the spirit is really great and profound here. Because here again, we don't control the wind. Yet, can you feel the wind? You can hear the wind. We have lots of wind here. We're Kansas, right? I'm a child of the wind, right? <laughs> so, the wind is ever-present, sometimes to our detriment. But we always have the wind around us here. It is something we're so familiar with that I don't even contemplate it anymore, right? It's just to what degree is it windy? But the point of it is, is that I can hear the wind, I can feel the wind, I can't see the wind, but see what you said, I can see its effects. It hits the branch, it moves the leaves, I can tell that it's there. So too, it is with the Spirit. We don't control Him, we don't you know, direct Him, but we can see His invisible workings within us, i.e., how would you see the effects of the spirit within an individual? What do you think that crops up as? How is that visual? Fruit. Fruit. Changed life. Exactly. Fruit. Changed life. Redirection. Right? This person, spiritually dead, we can see the proof of the spiritual new life within him by who he then demonstrates himself to be and how he interacts, engages, what he does, what he says. You can see that inner transformation happen. That's a proof of the Spirit's work within us, and that's what Jesus is getting at here in John 3. Okay, I like the way John Murray um, says it. He says, The wind is not at our beck and call, neither is the regenerative operation of the Spirit. So now we've moved back to our handouts there. Titus 3.5. I think we even just read it a little bit ago, but let's read it again. If somebody could read Titus 3.5, please. By the Holy Spirit. So who of the Trinity is involved within this regeneration? And we've kind of already stated it, but I have something else with this. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Exactly. Yeah. The obvious answer, right? That was an easy one. So Holy Spirit individual is involved. However, we do need to, within our regeneration, give credence to the God the Father. Okay. What do I mean by that? I think there's a really interesting quote. I loved this quote by MacArthur, who kind of states God's, God the Father, his interaction with our regeneration in relation with the Holy Spirit. He says this, We may conclude, therefore, that while the Father is the ultimate agent of regeneration, i.e. summoning us out of death into life, i.e. the gospel, right, like what we talked about, the Holy Spirit is the efficient cause of regeneration, who carries out the will of the Father by giving us spiritual life. So the Holy Spirit is that efficient cause, that agent that brings a thing into being or initiates the change within us. He's that agent working within us in our regeneration. 
So God the Father wills our regeneration, summons us through the gospel, but it is the Holy Spirit in action fulfilling the Father's will, changing that dead, lead sinner into a new birth and new life in Christ. Okay? Regeneration. Questions? This is a deep dive. You can take a breath. Okay. All right. I think, too, there's a sense... I, I wonder when he talks about how you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. Like, they're preparing to um, soon the, the gospel will be spreading from the Jews to the Gentiles. You know, Nicodemus was this teacher of the Pharisees, but you, know, you need to be born again. And there's this sense in which you can't see uh, the Spirit and sense of who he is working in, who the Father is drawing to salvation. And so we have to look for and seek to sh- share the gospel and sow the seed everywhere, looking for the, the evidences that the Spirit is, is working and blowing in the sails of those people that um, are hearing and receiving and that, that gospel is bearing fruit. So there's a, just an un... Sometimes we, I can go around and think that, I, oh, the Spirit might be moving here, but not here, or here, but not here. And like dovetailing off that, we can also start to kind of measure our success with the gospel. Well, I'm really effective because look, I got ten people, mm-hmm. and you only got one person, right? But that, that's not how that works, and it's also not a competition, right? Um, that's a bad way of doing it. But yeah, that's so good stuff. Regeneration happens in a moment, but it's not like you were saved once, and to the extent that you were saved is completely. Mm-hmm. Is it the same with regeneration, or does that grow as you grow in Christ? Yeah, so regeneration, we're going to say that that transformation and that renewing of spiritual life is momentary. In one moment, we are made into a new being in Christ. When we talk about, because we kind of like, we know we become more like Christ, right? So it's like, wait a second, right? That's what we're going to deem as sanctification. And we will cover that. That's coming up in our list. Some you know, of you guys have cheated and looked ahead, but we will cover that. So that's a good point, and it is a good differentiation to have. Okay. Questions? Okay. Let's do a sprint, okay? <laughs> Let's see if we can do adoption as well, okay? So our other point, let's cover today, adoption. Adoption's cool. It's righteous. It's, it's righteous. Thank you, Scott. <laughs> See, there are people that use it. <laughs> Scott's cool. He's an elder. All right. <laughs> 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 You're cool. Yeah. Trying to get those pastor points. Yeah. Any? No. I'll go back to my study guide. <laughs> Adoption. Adoption, okay? Adoption is what it kind of sounds like. Adoption. This is one that we can kind of understand with our social structures, right? We know individuals who have been adopted and what that means. There are some differences in some regards when we talk about this in spiritual terms, but there are a lot of similarities as well that we can relate to. So this, simply put, is the believer's placing as a son, emphasizing the believer's rights and privileges in his new position in Christ. Let's read these uh, couple passages. Romans 8, 14 through 17. Somebody got that? For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. 
For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be also be glorified with him. Good. Galatians <coughs> 4, 4 through 7. We volunteer. For when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the, adop- that we might receive the adoption of sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of us into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Excellent. Good. Okay, so lots, I mean, we've read it twice, adoption as sons. Um, We've read Abba, Father, heirs, in both passages here, right? So in adoption, this here again, is God legally placing regenerated and now justified individuals into his family. This is fabulous. So that we now become and are called sons and daughters of God, and we enjoy all those privileges. Now, this is distinct from justification and adoption. There is a little bit of a distinction because what we were just talking about, luckily we're covering this all today, right? Justification is that legal declaration that we are now righteous, i.e. Christ's righteousness is placed upon us. Well, with adoption, it's the legal declaration that we have been a justified individual, has been melded in, has been made a member of God's family. He legally now claims you as a son. (coughs) There are some fantastic references. If you do any research on Roman adoption and the relation that Paul uses with that within Galatians, um, Friday morning Bible study, us guys that are part of that one in particular, we honed in on that for like a month. We just ruminated in it, and it's cool. There are aspects to the Roman adoption being that, for instance, all the paperwork of which your previous identity had, your last name being on all those documents, all that evidence that said, you know, hey, I am Jason Engel, ripped up, burned, shredded, totally put away. It's like your old identity is just completely obliterated. And now you have your new adoption as the heir of whomever adopted you. Those are some of those strong connotations that are brought in with our adoption, right? Because we talk a lot about here with our new identity in Christ, and this has a piece of it. You are no longer who you used to be. You are a son or daughter of God Almighty. I don't even know what to do with that if I contemplate that too hard. It's so cool, right? I mean, it's fabulous. But on that note, let's lay out some misconceptions just so that we don't go so far with this, right? Romans 8, 17. If you look, we're in Romans 8 right now. There's that passage in 17 that says, If children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Right? So here we see that we're fellow heirs with Christ. Hebrews 2.11 speaks of Christ himself saying that we are brothers with him. Do you think this doctrine makes us equals with Christ? No. Oh, fast and hard no. Good job. Excellent. Correct. And that can be obvious. That can be obvious, but I just want to make sure that we lay that out. Jesus still is the one and only eternal Son of God, 
we don't lay claim to that. We don't go up to Jesus and say, hey, bro, buddy, buddy, he is still Lord and Savior, right? He is high and preeminent. He is a member of the Trinity. We fall short. <laughs> okay, no, all right? So we need to just kind of lay that misconception out. How about this? This is kind of like a bumper sticker on a t-shirt is that, have you ever heard somebody say, well, everyone, i.e. all human beings are children of God. True, false, why or why not? Jesus says no. How do you think that? No, you're not a child of God unless you know God and his son, Jesus Christ. Eric? All are created in his image, but all are not entitled and children with those same benefits because of the born-again part. Exactly. You guys both nailed it. Nail on the head. Yeah. So when we think about humanity as a whole, we do need to acknowledge not everybody is a child of God. You wanted to look at that scripturally, John 1, 12 through 13, I'll read it. If you want to jot it down, take a look at it later or something. But it says, To all who did receive him, i.e. Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Okay? Those who believe, like what Eric just said, right? Those who are reborn. They become children of God. We need to make sure we understand that, right? Okay. Now, obviously, we want to make sure we accept that with humility. Yes. But for the grace of God, there, there go I, right? Mm -hmm. So we always take that with the deem of humility and grain of humility with that. All right. How about this? Privileges of our adoption. Let's list some of those. We'll just list them here. But some of the things of which we now, as heirs, obtain and have because of our adoption. How about this? We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That union with Christ. That is a piece of our adoption as sons. And because the Holy Spirit is within us, we can now make that call or that cry of Abba Father, that intimate relationship, that intimate call unto God as our Father. Um, you guys have probably heard it many a times that it's kind of referred to as the, the verb of Daddy, right? Or the, the, the name of Daddy. Like, my kids are the only ones that call me daddy, right? That shows that intimate relationship that I have with my children, okay? We have that, and the Spirit enables us to do that. How about this? He displays his kindness to us. God displays his kindness to us, and he acts always in our greatest interest. We think of passages like Matthew 7, 11, right? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him, right? Um, Luke 12, 29 through 30, And do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. But your Father knows that you need them. God provides for us. He shows us compassion, provision. Right? He's looking out for us as his children. And we also can approach him with prayer. Ever count that one? I think sometimes we underrate prayer. Prayer's huge. And how about this? Loving discipline? That one's not fun. I don't much like that one. That one I struggle less with, right? But what does the scripture teach us? It says, Hebrews 12, 5 through 7, and you, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproached by him. Here comes the cool part. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. How about unity in the church? 
We're all now brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why we call each other brothers and sisters in Christ, because we all have the same Father now. This is a short, terrible list, so to speak. There's so much more to be gleaned from adoption, and that can result in our praise. But I just want to give you a few aspects here, because I know we've kind of run out of our time here. Okay? Does that make sense? Last minute questions? Malachi? Got one? No? I do, Jason. Yes. Uh, and maybe this isn't like a 20 second. No, that's okay. I'm thinking of Ephesians 1 5 that says he predestined us for adoption um, uh-huh. to himself. So, like, is the predestination and adoption, are they like, I know they're not one and the same, but do they just go together? So, like, where you see predestination, you also see adoption? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's a good one. You said Ephesians one was. One I'm five. looking for it here. There we go. Okay. Yeah. Hebrew distance adoption. Yeah. I'd have to think on that question. I don't want to hop to a fast answer, right? Because I think I've had that one myself. Like, where does adoption play in, time wise? Yeah. Okay. Did you have a fast, good answer? Did you say? I said they're different. One is being marked out beforehand, but it's true that we were children of wrath and now we're children of light. So there is kind of a redemption from one to the other. Who's going to mean that? Yeah. And I think a lot within our conversion, things happen so fast that the argument for time-wise can get kind of sticky Mm -hmm. in some shape or form because sometimes they they are distinct, but they are also intertwining with one another. Mm -hmm. Or you could say, for instance, like with faith and repentance, which happens first, I lean on the side of repentance than faith. Yeah. That seems to make logical sense, and I think a lot of people would agree with that. But they happen so fast that it's like in a concession order that we just almost can't see with our naked eyes, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. Right? Does that help? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll end today. Father God, we do thank you so much for this time in your word. Thank you, Father God, for justifying us, for saving us, for adopting us, Lord God. Um, These truths are magnificent, and we've only scratched the surface. Thank you for um, everybody sticking with it today. We've looked at a ton of passages, but that's good for us to always be um, looking into your word for the answers, and may we continue to do some more. Lord, please be with the service that we are about to partake in, and Lord, may you be glorified in all things, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.